I actually thought Nick and Larry were my friends until they gave me this topic. <laughs> so let me start with two stories, uh, both of which are true. Uh, the first is sourced in the late 1980s. Priscilla and I were living in Poland at the time. This was at the end of, coming toward the end of the communist era. We'd lived in Poland for over a year and had seen how civil disobedience could basically undermine the economy and the political structure of a nation. And uh, we also were living in a place where, at the time, the Soviet Union was threatening to intervene militarily. So it was a tense period of time. You watched it on CNN. We stood in line for bread while you were watching it on CNN. The whole thing began uh, several years earlier, but it came to a head in the spring of 1989. Uh, we. At that time, Poland was ruled by General Wojtek Jaruzelski. You may remember that name. He was a military commander whom the Soviets had propped up as the Prime Minister of Poland. The, other, the opposition was led by a, trade, a series of trade unions, a network of trade unions. You may know them as Solidarity. Anybody here remember all this, or is it just like, am I speaking fantasy language? Uh, you may remember the name Lech Wałęsa, who was the electrician who went on strike, really began the Polish opposition to communism. So in the spring of 1989, after a series of crippling strikes, where solidarity would basically shut down different segments of the Polish economy uh, and make life absolutely miserable, the communist government agreed to round table, a roundtable talk so representatives of the Polish government, the Soviet ambassador to Poland, representatives of the military, and then representatives of solidarity. And at the time, there was tremendous hope among Polish people that something may come out of this that would actually begin the process of setting them free from communist domination. Poles have a remarkable resilience. Uh, I can tell you that as we lived there, we came to see them as some of the most courageous, most heroic, and most resilient people that we've ever been around. So in the spring of 1989, these roundtable talks began. And one of the things Poles did to survive throughout communist domination was make jokes. So the joke that was going around in the spring of 1989 is that the roundtable talks occurred around, seriously, a roundtable whose inner diameter was three meters. So for those of you who've never been outside the US, that's roughly nine and a half feet. So the inner diameter is nine and a half feet. And the question was, why is the inner diameter of the round table talks three meters? And the answer, no human can spit further than three meters. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a tense and polarized time. In that particular scenario, the vast majority of Polish people were opposed to communist rule, which they saw as Soviet oppression. They wanted them to be gone. But nonetheless, there were those who had found that working with the Soviets was beneficial to them. Uh, someone once said that in the 1980s, there were more communists in Cambridge than there were in the entire country of Poland. That's probably true. And those who were communist in Poland at that time were what I would call communists by convenience, not communists by conviction. They had found that working with the Communist Party and the Soviet Union 
made their life much easier. So now let's go to story number two. Story number two takes place in a completely different time and a completely different region. It's the story of two men, one of whom was the ultimate example of a patriot, the one who believed that their nation was in fact God-ordained, and the one who would go to no length, would go to any length to protect the integrity of the nation that God had created. The other was perceived to be a collaborator. See the parallels? Someone who had begun to work with the oppressors. Someone who benefited from working with the oppressors. The patriot, many of his colleagues, and maybe he himself, carried daggers so that whenever they came across a traitor or someone who represented the oppressive government could be killed. They were known as zealots. And the one man I'm thinking of had the name Simon the Zealot. The other man, the traitor, the one who was benefiting from collaborating with the oppressors, is known in the New Testament as Matthew. Matthew and Simon the Zealot could not have been further polarized politically in the first century world of the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire. Matthew the traitor worked for the Romans, collected taxes, benefited from the collection of taxes from his countrymen. Simon the Zealot, one of the four <coughs> renewal movements in Israel in the first century, committed to the reestablishment of the kingdom of David and the complete expulsion of any foreign powers. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, two of the twelve, whom Jesus called as his disciples. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how could two people on completely different ends of the political spectrum band together and become colleagues, brothers, for a common cause. That story, I hope, convinces you that as the people of God, there is something that calls us to band together, a mission, an identity, a savior that can transcend the deepest political division that you could possibly imagine. Does that make sense to you? Have you ever thought of Matthew and Simon in those terms? I would encourage you, if you have time, you might want to look at William Barclay's commentary on Luke. He does a good job of delving into this, as do several others coming afterwards. So what the second story tells us, I think, is that the key to being able to engage in political discourse or to talk about politics is to find a common identity that matters way more than the politics. That identity is what must shape those of us who call ourselves and see ourselves as the people of God. So the premise for this evening is that we must begin in thinking about how to talk about politics with a conversation about who we are. 
who, what is our primary identity. Then we can talk about why God has created us as who we are. And then we can talk about how to live out our identity in a politicized world. Make sense? So that's the way we'll unfold it from here on out. The best passage, I think, or the passage that speaks to me most poignantly about this is 1 Peter chapter 2. So get, get out your Bibles or whatever other kinds of electronic devices. There are the fully inspired Bibles. They're made out of paper. There are the partially inspired Bibles. They're the electronic ones. Uh, I'm just kidding about that, obviously. I will say this. For me personally, working and doing study, I find paper Bible to work better for me because I'm only one tap away from email on my phone or my iPad. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, is a, is a, starting in verse 9, is a passage that reminds us who we are, reminds us why we are who we are, and then tells us how we are to live out who we are. I want to just land here for a little while and then want to uh, take some time for questions and conversation and then I want to lay out what I think are some key ideas for living in a polarized political world uh, today. Uh, as an aside, by the way, let me before I get to the passage, let me recommend to you a couple of lectures that you can find on our website. They were just delivered yesterday. Wait. Yes, yesterday. Uh, by Dr. Leith Anderson. Leith's first name is L-E-I-T-H. He is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And uh, he did a presentation in the morning and in the evening yesterday. I would highly recommend them to you on this very topic uh, that we're talking about this evening. So let's start in verse 9 of chapter 2. And uh, we'll read verses 9 and 10 together to establish our identity. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, draws language directly out of Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. So I would encourage you to write down that reference and spend time in both of these passages. Some of what Peter has in 1 Peter 2, in fact is directly taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So clearly, he's drawing these two passages together. So he starts by saying, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So think with me about all the designators that we have in this brief passage, speaking to believers like you and me. And let's just be sure we understand, as Peter is writing, the believing community is gathered in a hostile political environment. Depending upon when you date the book of First Peter, you could be in the reign of Nero, who we know was a narcissist to the nth degree, even to the point of being willing to destroy the kingdom for his own vanity's sake, the empire. Or it could have been the emperor just before Nero, who was perhaps less aggressively anti-Christian, but nonetheless, culturally and politically, these Christians lived in an oppressive environment. 
So Peter reminds them first that they are a people um, because God took the initiative to make them a people. That phrase, you are a chosen people, likely brings their attention back to the very beginning of the people of God in the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. So I would encourage you to go back to Genesis 12, particularly verses 1 to 3, to look at how God established a people through the man Abram. It also goes back to the idea of what God did to bring his people out of Egypt. At his initiative, he brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out in spite of them being not necessarily the strongest nation or the most numerous people. He chose them at his initiative to be his people. And that's the language of Exodus 19. So we are a people because God has made us a people as followers of Jesus Christ. Then he uses the language of royal priesthood and a holy nation. These two terms come directly out of Exodus 19. Uh, just hang with me briefly here. The idea of the priesthood, of course, is a priest stands between God and the people. So if you think back to the temple and the tabernacle and the functioning of the pre, uh, functioning of the what we call the cult of the tabernacle, the priest mediated the requirements of God to the people, and then they mediated the worship of people back to God. So if you wanted to know what God required of you, the priest would lay it out for you. And if you wanted to bring your sacrifices and worship to God, you would give them to the priest and the priest would mediate or would bring those sacrifices to God. So when the people of God, the believers in Jesus, believers in Jesus Christ, are called a royal priesthood, the image is that we are mediators, that we, in fact, mediate the presence and, and the demands and the person of God to people. Now, if you take this to, a, an ex, to, an ex, to, I think, its logical conclusion, the people of God, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, are the ones who are to demonstrate and reveal to all peoples the character and requirements of God. And for those who want to come to know and worship the one true God, they were to do that through the people of God. That's the clear message of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. That's the clear pattern of the Old Testament, that the nations who wanted to worship the one true God did so in relationship to Israel. And so we, as the people of God today, have that same function. The church, we, the people of God, are the agents through whom God accomplishes his mission to be known throughout the earth. So we mediate between people and God by living out the presence of the risen Christ. The second phrase, holy nation, really has to do with the fact that as the people of God, we have a different way of life. One commentator calls the people of God a showcase people. The way we choose to live is supposed to reflect the character of the God whom we worship. So if you think back, this idea of a showcase nation, think to uh, a craftsman who puts his best wares in the window. And those wares are so beautiful that you want to see the craftsman who could have made them. If you think back to the Old Testament where this phrase is used, Israel received the law, the charter for how they as the redeemed people of God were to live. And that law that they received 
contained commands that were not found in other nations around them. And if they were to obey those laws, they would demonstrate to all the nations the very character of the God who called them and gave them those laws. So I would recommend you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, to give you an idea of the power of the law and obedience to the law to reveal and demonstrate the very character of God. So, the people of God, chosen or created at God's initiative, royal priesthood to mediate God's presence to all the peoples around them, a holy people, holy nation, whose way of life must be different than the nations around them. And then finally, God's special possession. This is a language in Exodus 19 called treasured possession. And it simply has to do with the fact that out of all the nations on the face of the earth, and because they all belong to God, God, at his initiative, created a people who are his own, his special possession. They receive the law. They receive the covenant. They live in relationship to God in ways that nobody else does. That's who we are. That's who we are. God's special possession, living in covenant with God, unlike anyone else, given the privilege of living unlike anyone else, giving the privilege of mediating the very presence of God on the earth to all the peoples around us and recognizing that we are created at God's initiative as his people. That creates a sense of privilege, but it also creates a sense of service. Well, we go on into this. If you skip down to verse 10, or at the end of verse 9, Peter reminds us that we are also people who once were in darkness. So we are transformed people, or you might want to say redeemed people. We lived in darkness, but God rescued us from darkness and brought us into the light of truth. So we're chosen people, a holy nation, kingdom of priests, treasured possession, and redeemed, rescued, brought out from darkness. You might look at Colossians 1.15 that talks about what Christ has done in redeeming us and bringing us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And not only that, but we're people who have received mercy. Otherwise, in other words, what, what Peter reminds us is we deserved none of this. None of it. Nothing that we had done, nothing in and of ourselves made us worthy to become who God has created us to be. And so therefore, as those who have received the mercy of God, our very posture must be one of gratitude and humility before the one who has created us. So, we're God's people first and foremost. We are the people of God. And then the second question, and why are we the people of God? It's a little phrase in the middle of verse 9 that I want you to look at. Uh, this is the word that's translated in English, that, after the, after the terminology of special possession. The way this passage is written, uh, that, that is a translation of a connection or connecting word in Greek. And that connecting word in Greek almost always indicates purpose or result. So, you are all of these things. For 
one reason, one purpose, so that you may make known, you may communicate, you may shout from the rooftops, you may demonstrate, you may proclaim, you may think of all the words that you can come up with that have to do with conveying some message. You are all of these things for one purpose, so that you can make known the excellencies or the virtues or the perfections of the God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. One purpose. One. A singular mission that we are called to as the people of God which frames every activity of the church. Every activity of those who dare or be, dare to believe that they are actually God's people. One. One. One overarching purpose for which we've been created. <coughs> we could go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27. The very creation of humanity as the image of God, so that as the image of God, they could represent and reveal Creator God and fill the earth with the image of the one true God. Our one purpose, our singular mission as the people of God goes all the way back to the very creation of Adam and Eve who created as the image of God were in <coughs> fact to represent, reveal Creator God throughout all the earth. Now, you say to me, well, well, the church does lots of things. The church preaches, the church teaches, the church disciples, the church cares, the church speaks prophetically. Yes, the church does all of those things. The people of God are amazed, are gifted and engaged in a wide variety <coughs> of different activities. But all of it has to come back to the singular purpose that flows out of our identity. So that you may declare, shout from the rooftops, demonstrate, reveal, communicate, whatever verb you want to use, how great our God is. From my perspective, if we start there, we can have a very short conversation about how to talk about politics and remain friends. Because whatever way we choose as the people of God to engage in the society around us, in the political arena, in the business arena, in the professional arena, in the, in the uh, school system, wherever we find ourselves, everything we do must be consistent with our identity and the purpose for which we were created. That's the one criterion that has to be a part of every concept of who we are in the political world. So, let's just 
go for a couple more verses, then we'll open up for questions. The question then is, Peter, how do we do this? How do we live out this singular mission for which we've been created? Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. All right, stop right there. Foreigners and exiles. Interesting language. The clear implication that Peter is writing to these believers living in the time of the Roman Empire is that they are to perceive themselves <coughs> as the people of God living in a place that is not their primary identity. They are not first and foremost Romans. They are not first and foremost Jews, even if they have Roman citizenship. First and foremost, they are to see themselves as foreigners and exiles. What language could we use here? Perhaps you could use immigrant. Perhaps you could use refugee. Perhaps you could use expatriate. So Priscilla and I have lived in places other than the nationality designated on our passport, passports. Priscilla was born in the Panama Canal Zone. And at the age of three, with her American passport, moved to Ethiopia and spent several of her years, childhood years, in Ethiopia. Came back to the United States, fell in love with a West Virginian who could barely see the world beyond the rim of the holler. <laughs> fell in love, married, and moved to Austria. Lived in Austria for four years. Then moved to Poland for seven years. Every stop along the way, every one of those countries, whether it was Ethiopia or Austria or Poland, were places of residence that were not her country of origin. Austria, not my country of origin. Poland, not my country of origin. We were foreigners and exiles in Austria and in Poland and in Ethiopia. As foreigners and exiles, our primary identity was not as Polish and not as American. Because the longer we lived outside the United States, the less like Americans we became. And the longer we lived where we were, the more we became like those folks. We could never be fully Polish. Even though we'd wake up, walk outside, speak Polish almost all day long, come back into our house, speak English so our kids wouldn't forget how to speak English, then step back out into a Polish world, but we were never Polish. And the longer we lived in Poland, the less and less American we became. Oh, we had American passports. But we saw our identities not in our home culture and not in our host culture. 
So if you're not at home in your home culture or your host culture, where do you find your identity as a child of God? <coughs> After we uh, moved back to the United States, our um, oldest son was 11 when we moved back. He was fully integrated into Polish schools, Polish friends, and he struggled mightily. So one year after we returned to the U.S., he and I returned to Poland for two weeks. We got to the little airport where we had lived, a city airport, and when the plane landed, we looked out the window, and his entire class and their parents were waiting for him. I had to take a taxi to where I was staying. <coughs> they picked him up, and I didn't see him for two weeks. They passed him around from house to house. He went back to school. They completely re-embraced him. After those two weeks, we got back up on, we got on the airplane, we're flying home, 12-year-old kid, and he says to me, Dad, who am I? Am I Polish? Am I an American? Who am I, Dad? There's really only one answer. You're a child of God. Aliens and strangers, foreigners and exiles, whose primary identity is not their country of residence or necessarily their country of origin. It is their God. That's what you and I are called to be. <coughs> We're not called to our <coughs> primary identity as American first. Our first identity is the people of God. This isn't just written to missionaries who've lived this. It's written to each and every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Period. No exceptions. None. So if you live as a foreigner and an exile, you automatically know that you are not going to have significant influence on the power structures of the nation within which you live. In most cases, you can't even contribute in the political process. You also know that your way of life is going to per be perceived as weird and different and not like everybody else. You also know that when things aren't going well, <coughs> you're going to be blamed for it. In fact, your presence in many cultures would be perceived as the reason why things aren't going well. You also know that you're going to be cheated. Not only are you going to be cheated, you're going to be taken advantage of. And you're going to be slandered because you're not understood, and many times you're not welcome. That's who we are. That's who we are. Is that what you signed up for? You put your faith in Christ? That's who we're called to be. We're called to be so different in what we value and what we pursue that the majority of those who are in power will look upon us and see us as a threat 
because we speak truth to them, <coughs> will see us not as someone who will support them, but as someone who will oppose them when they deviate from that which is true and right. That's who we are. We're to live as those who are foreigners and exiles in the United States, regardless of what your passport says. And so your national identity is absolutely irrelevant when it comes to your primary identity as a child of God. So, as foreigners and exiles, what are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, we're supposed to live consistently with our identity as the royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's special possession. Because if we don't live that way, if we follow our human desires, then we'll automatically sense the conflict between who we really are and how we're choosing to live. That's why he says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. See, as a, as a human being, I crave power. I want to have influence. I want to get my way. I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want somebody that I disagree with to have power over me. And so my desire is to grasp for power, to manipulate power, to gain power. Foreigners and exiles have no power. other than the truth and virtue. And when we grasp for power and seek power and use power to oppress others, to exclude <coughs> others, to turn others away from Jesus, all we're doing is fulfilling those natural desires that wage war against our identity as the people of God. You look stunned. I don't know if you're stunned, mad, what, but... Then, not only that, but we're to live good lives among the pagans. And Paul, or Peter, excuse me, pulls no punches. He knows they're living in a hostile environment. He knows they're living among people who do not share their values and do not share their beliefs. He calls them pagans, meaning those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to live good lives among them. Now notice... We're to live in ways that they recognize as good and that are consistent with who we are. Mercy, compassion, concern, generosity, hospitality, justice, truth. These are good lives that we're to live among the pagans. And he goes on to say, and even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, and they will, they'll accuse you of being bigots, They'll accuse you of being narrow-minded. They'll accuse you of all manner of things. Even though they may accuse you of doing good, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. And so, it seems to me we have a pretty clear choice living as foreigners and exiles. We can grasp for power, seek power, get our way, and that's the way of life that wars against our soul. Or we can live good lives, even though we will be maligned, suspected, and marginalized, trusting 
that in living those good lives, the Spirit of God will work His purpose in causing them to come to know Christ when He returns. So all we have to do is ask ourselves the question, what do we want more? Power or the salvation of the souls of those who do not know Jesus? It's as simple as that. And I would confess to you that in my experience back in the United States since 1995, I've heard way more conversations about how Christians are to gain political power and influence and make sure the right candidates get into office than I have about how do we live so that people will believe in the risen Christ because of our testimony. And the way Peter sets it up, it's a pretty sharp contrast. You have a choice. Wage war against your soul or live out your identity. Crave and seek power or yearn for the, yearn for the salvation of those who do not know Jesus. So, how do you talk about politics and remain friends? I would say to you that, first and foremost, as we think through the maybe some practical implications of this, politics fundamentally are of lesser value than anything that's associated with our identities. If we, as the people of God, are known for anything other than our identity, as followers of Jesus Christ, that only reveals our idolatries. So, what are some of our idolatries? Power. Where else do you want to go with that? Nationalism. Is that an idolatry for us? More valuable than our identity as the people of God? Anything that we put above our identity as God's people is an idolatry and does nothing to help us live out the mission that we've been called to live. I would argue that our participation in politics should be for one person, for one purpose, so that more people would come to know Jesus Christ, period. So however we want to engage in the political process, whether it's run for office or however we want to engage, it has to be consistent with our identity and for our one purpose, <coughs> that more people would come to know Christ. I would say another principle in terms of how we engage the political process, we need to care more about people than issues. 99% of the conversation is about issues. 99.9999% of our mission is people. And so to the degree that we are able to talk about people and be concerned for them more than winning the ideological battle, battle over issues, we are living out our identity. But once you make someone an issue, then you've dehumanized them 
in a way that denies their worth before Jesus Christ. Gay people? An issue or people? Is it the mission of the church to get gay people to stop having sex? Or is it the mission of the church to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ? That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> issue or people? Death penalty. Issue or people? <coughs> Gun control. Issue or people? Tax policy. Issue or people? Health care. Issue or people? As soon as you see yourself losing sight of people and being completely wrapped up in issues, you have lost sight of your calling as the people of God. We have lost sight of our calling as the people of God. Next step, I would say, is this. Engage to learn, not to convince. And if you were to ask me what my number one top recommendation would be in relationship to engage to learn, not to convince, get off all social media right now. Drop it. Is any, it's like Nazareth. Has anything good ever come out of Facebook? <laughs> Something good came out of Nazareth. Nazareth, <laughs> right. right. But that was the question Nathaniel asked, right? What, what, why would we want to continue to be bathing our minds and our hearts in pathetically misinformed opinions that are only given to try to convince people to one position or the other? Why would we do that? I'm not saying Facebook is evil. If you want to, if you, if you want to keep making sure your life is better off than the people you went to high school with, <laughs> then go ahead and involve yourself in that. It's, it's a wonderful self-congratulatory process. Learn or engage to learn. Engage to learn, not to convince. And the last thing I would say to you, get out of your echo chamber. You know what an echo chamber is, right? Where you only hear the same voice over and over and over again. If you watch MSNBC all the time, turn it off. If all you watch is Fox News, turn it off. I've never met more angry, indignant, and depressed people than those who spend 24 hours a day watching Fox News. I'll just be honest with you. Turn it off. If it doesn't cause you to want to love liberals, turn it off. If it doesn't cause you to want conservatives to come to faith in Christ, turn it off if you're a liberal. Why would you continue to saturate your mind with that which causes you to do nothing more than rage with indignation and depression and no desire <coughs> to either learn to know or to love or to lead to Christ lead to Christ, those are on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Why would you do that as the people of God? I'm not a big consumer at all. I don't watch cable news. In fact, pat myself on the back, we cut our cable. So in order to watch the Rockies, I'm mooching off my dad's cable. 
a 61-year-old millennial right here. <laughs> All right, I've been haranguing you for too long. Let's talk. What questions do you have? Thoughts? We, we have more than three meters here, so we can, we'll be all right. When you're talking about people versus issues, one of the things you left off the list was abortion. Correct. So that one is people that can't speak for themselves. How sure. Do you deal with that? Yeah, no question. We have to have compassion for all of the people involved in the abortion debate. In the abortion debate. Babies, moms, caregivers, yes. uh, partners, spouses, everyone who's a part of that particular concern are all people, all of them. And I am just as concerned for the salvation of each and every person involved as I am the others. So yeah, absolutely. Hmm? Other questions? I want to thank you for your message and the stressing to put people first. Yeah. Instead of issues. Yeah. Just an example from my own experience. Um, basically, I'm a meteorologist by profession. <coughs> I'm a master's in meteorology. Uh -huh. And I've always been studying uh, global warming and climate change and yes. all that. And yes. I have strict, pretty strong views on that issue. Yes. In 2008, when Rick Santor was trying to run in the Republic things, yes. he was very strong anti-climate right. change. Right. And it hasn't changed to this day. Right. Well, I thought I knew it all, and I wrote this email out to my family and friends about climate change is a real issue. Yeah. And they're all Christians, basically. I got to say, they believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah. But I got such strong, angry I know. answers back. I know. I, it made me say, no more issues right. going out to my family. Yes. Because it's better to remain their friends and things. Yes. But insist on being right. Yes, I agree with you. So I really yep. haven't tried to push an issue, mm -hmm. which no matter how strongly I believe in it, yes. since 2008. More about people than issues. Yep. Yeah, that's a great so, reminder. I think we also ought to, I mean, one other thing we could add to our to our list is, as evangelicals, we, we, we can't be truth deniers. We have to, we have to face the truth. So yeah, maybe there is still a lack of consensus in some areas of the science around climate change. I have a good friend at MIT who is a, uh, he started out as a hydrologist, later got a PhD in economics, and now works on the question of climate change for the World Bank. He's a strong evangelical Christian. He, like you, is so frustrated with a lot of folks who simply aren't willing to look at the data. Now certainly you could politicize data, all right? Let's just say that. But we can't, we can't allow ourselves to deny what the data is saying to us. So, I don't know, I'm not a high, I'm not a, I'm not trained like <coughs> you, I don't know all of the scientific and features of the, cli of the climate and how it works, but I trust people like you, and I trust people like my friend. They're not politicians, they're not lobbying for power, they're simply trying to understand what's happening so that they can help create solutions for what they think is, a, is an impending problem. That's fine. I, I, look, of all the people on the face of the earth, we ought, to be, we ought to be in love with the truth. We ought to be in love with what's real. Why would we ever not want to be? Yeah, other questions, comments? 
Hmm? I coordinate a program here at Waterstone on social justice. Uh huh. And I'm hearing what you say, and I appreciate your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. One of my mantras have been to have a voice for those who have none. Absolutely. Which means you need to find about the issues. Mm -hmm. I use the word issues. I get it. And um, learn what you need to learn and speak to people in power. Speak up about them. Sure. Speak to your congressman. Yep. It is very challenging to even have that mantra right. in today's world of biased reporting mm -hmm. and how much time it takes to find out about the issue. Mm -hmm. um, no question. What is the truth at the end of the day, right? What is the truth? Mm -hmm. But I don't want to personally diminish my message because I think it's an important message. Sure. Well, the, well I mean, you can <coughs> talk about issues, but you could also say that you're advocating for the vulnerable those who are most at risk in a society. And I would say to you that there's very little that's more Christian than advocating for the well-being of all people, as particularly those who are most vulnerable. So I, I would encourage you to carry on in that arena. I would also encourage all of us to say news is no more biased today than it's ever been. Go back and read some of the, some of the newspapers during the Civil War. And especially read sermons from Christians who, from the Bible, defended slavery. From that passage, by the way. Yep, exactly. And, and we're not more polarized today than we've been in the past. We've had brief moments of not being polarized. But, my goodness, FDR, after we won the war, faced such opposition. opposition he could barely be reelected. And Winston Churchill was not elected after the Second World War. So there's always a polarization. Now let me just say this. Last election, I heard a lot of Christians saying, oh, it's a terrible election. Like, neither candidate can I fully support. That's the point. That's exactly where we're supposed to be. Because neither candidate is pursuing the kingdom of God. And so we're always going to be going, oh, neither candidate. That's the way we ought to be, always. And so we speak truth to the right, and we speak truth to the left, and we are concerned for the people who are affected by the policies of the right, and the people who are affected negatively by the policies on the left. That's who we are. And so if you and I came down on different sides of the equation of who we're going to vote for, at least as believers, we ought to be able to come together on what is the outcome for the lives of those who are affected by the policies that the candidates are fussing over. That's where we ought to land. <coughs> and that's where the conversation needs to go. So to me, if you and I as believers are able to say, we absolutely believe that health care needs to be available to all people. Affordable health care needs to be available to all people because people suffer without health care in ways that are truly, truly destructive. Well, you may want it to be free market health care. I may want it to be single-payer health care. But at least we have a common end in mind. And from that foundation, then maybe we can find some policy that we can agree upon. Look, we're, the whole system's broke. Well, 
why would we expect it not to be broke? I mean politics. Because they're all pursuing power at the expense of the other. And that's not who we are. Other comments, questions, thoughts? We just had a grandson that is a missionary going to Germany. Uh -huh. Last week, they just left with two little kids. Thanks, thanks I be to God. I ask you about your 11-year-old. Yeah. So where is he now? Dallas. Where? Dallas. And how is he doing emotionally? Well, first of all, you have when to... When he was 11 and brought him... Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, you have to recognize, it, since he's in Texas, that's a foreign country. So he's still... <laughs> yeah, right, right. Right. I, mean, I lived there for 14 years. Okay, I can yeah, say Yeah, he never that, wanted right? to stay. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Republic of Texas. So what happened is, when, they, when we came back to the U.S., he was 11, we moved to Dallas, and he desperately, desperately sought an identity that would fit in with other kids. Absolutely. What do 11-year-olds do, right? I mean, name me one who doesn't. That isn't a psychopath. So they, he became a part of that community, he moved forward, married, two kids, making way more money than me, and very, very, very happy in what he's doing and loving Jesus. So mm -hmm. I'd say we're very thankful mm -hmm. in his way, yeah. in his church. But he struggled mightily to get where he is. He did, yeah. He went through struggles to figure out who he was, and there, were, there was a period of time when he didn't know what he wanted to do professionally, and he wasn't married, and he even moved home. <laughs> and then we left. And then we left, right? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have an empty nest, we just blew up the nest. Right? <laughs> we like to say, we raised our children to soar on wings like eagles, turned out they were homing pigeons. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say this, certainly some children, every child is different, and certainly in Priscilla's family, if you were to talk to her two brothers, you'd get a very different feel for what it was like for them to live in Ethiopia, and so I, I don't think you can create any patterns that every child who has this way of life or this transition is going to end up... Well, I'm just saying for missionary kids, do you know what theory is? Yeah, well, she has two brothers who are missionary kids, and they would have a very different telling of the story yeah. than okay. she... Yeah. 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 Other, other questions? Yeah. Um, just a little train of thought. So I graduated from Denver Seminary. I'm uh -huh. ordained mm -hmm. conservative Baptist by uh -huh. this church. Yep. Um, and recently I started mentoring a student from Denver Seminary and mm -hmm. had to get on and sign the NA, right. NAE doctrinal statement. Mm -hmm. And I had no problem with the content. I mm -hmm. passed harder tests by doctrinal <laughs> statements. Right. I almost wanted to cross off the NAE term, mm -hmm. because evangelicals, as a term, mm -hmm. nowadays, from my perspective, feels like equals those who elected Trump. Uh -huh. Sure. And that takes me out of my identity as Christ. Mm -hmm. No problem doctrinally. Big problem with that word. Yeah. Evangelical. That word? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I've never done this before, but in the fall, a book's coming out called "Still Evangelical." question mark and I have a chapter in that I was asked to reflect on the term um, and you know from my perspective uh, the term has a lot of power because of its history because of its theological identity and meaning but as a missionary my my whole way of life is 
identify myself in the way that makes it most likely that someone want to hear about my Jesus. So for me, if we can return to that and continue to argue for that theological identity, there's a reason to continue to use that. But if it becomes so politicized, which it has, and more so that that theological identity is impossible and the testimony of Jesus is compromised, why would we keep it? Now, I'm president of a 67-year-old evangelical institution, right? I graduated. Yeah. So um, I, I have other people to think about than myself. And so we'll continue to identify as an evangelical institution, continue to be members of the NAE, continue to use their statement. But I would think as from a missionary, if I were just talking as a missionary, uh, and I saw that that was inhibiting my testimony for Jesus, then why would I hang on to it? It's very interesting. Um, in Poland and in Germany, evangelical, evangelische, or in Polish, evangeliczne, that means Lutheran. Hmm. The evangelical right? Lutheran church. Well, yeah. So even evangelical in, in German and in German regions means Lutheran. And Christian means Roman Catholic. <laughs> right? So if we identified ourselves as Christian, then the assumption was we were Roman Catholic. If we identified ourselves, identified ourselves as evangelical, assumption was we were Lutheran, both of which were misleading. So the believing community that we were a part of chose the word believer. So we were Viajante. <coughs> and believer works across all those groups. So you can be Viajante in the Catholic Church, you can be Viajante in the Lutheran Church, you can be Viajante in the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, and however many other different groups there were. That was by far the best way to identify ourselves if we wanted to have a conversation about Jesus. Yeah. So I don't know the answer for you personally. I do know for me, as the president of an institution that's identified that way, and whose constituents, and, and I myself still find value there, I'm going to hang on to it. So I'm a hospital chaplain. So yeah, my, different world. My dominant world is the employees and the mm -hmm, patients. Mm -hmm. I, I probably will not use that term. Yeah. And, and I think, again, the reasoning is you haven't changed your beliefs. No. But it gives you a better opportunity to share, to yeah. do what First Peter 2.10 says, 2.9 says. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough... Well, thank you. I, that's a freeing thing. So I yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you'll find some of the chapters in the book to be quite enlightening. There are some who are ready to give up on it and some who will hold on to it at all expense. That was the purpose of writing the book that way. I think there are 10 of us or 12 of us who wrote chapters. Yeah? What was the name of the book again, please? Well, I don't remember the subtitle, but the first two words are still evangelical with a question mark. And because it's an academic book, it has to have a colon. <laughs> right? You ever notice that? No right. All academic books have to have a colon in the title. So it's still evangelical, question mark, colon. <laughs> and then the subtitle after that. I don't remember the subtitle. It's edited by Mark Laberton, who's the uh, president of Fuller Seminary, L-A-B-B-E-R-T-O-N. I think it'll be out, um, I think it'll be out by the end of the year. Yeah. Okay. Someone else? Or are we done? What, how are we doing, Daniel? We've uh, got about 15 minutes left. Okay. As long as you're ready to keep going, I'm ready to keep going. Yeah. That's my sweetheart there. Yeah. Give them your little motto that we have no right. Yeah.
Yeah, so I talked about being committed to the truth, and I do believe we have to be committed to the truth. And as evangelicals, we believe the truth, that truth is derived from the Word of God, that God's Word is truth, and from science, and from other disciplines as well. But God's Word is truth, the revelation of Jesus is true. So we need to be right if we're going to preach the gospel. We need to be right about Jesus. We need to be right about the way we interpret God's Word. But I think as believers, we're also called to be redemptive. That is, the way we talk about what's right has to be for the purpose of people coming to know Christ. And so what I used to say to students, and I still say, is that we have to be right in order to be redemptive. But we have no right to be right unless we're also redemptive. Because I see a lot of Christians who are way hung up on being right, but not that interested in making sure that those who hear what they're saying come to faith in Christ. I think that, that bleeds over into the political arena very, very much. Other questions or comments? <coughs> yes, ma'am. So I really appreciated what you said in terms of we can uh, take your example with health care, that we say, yes, we do want people to have health care, but huh? people can have very, very different yes. ideas <coughs> of how you might best achieve that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I find the language can get very challenging of, you know, I just don't see how you could think that that's a reasonable solution. Uh -huh. how, that's what people say. I just can't see how you get there. <laughs> and how listen do to you what that. Past that, because yeah. at that point, my reaction is, well, you know, I just want to drop the topic. Exactly, and I would too. So if you, if you think about this, I just can't understand how you could believe that. You have just demonstrated the fact that you are not interested in learning. Mm -hmm. You're only interested in convincing. Because you haven't taken the time to actually listen to why a person comes to those policy decisions or those proposals that they're putting forth. So if you ever hear yourself saying, I just don't <coughs> understand how they could get there, then you're convicting yourself. You haven't taken the time to listen to really consider the other points of view. Now, it's one thing to say, I, I get it. I see why you come, you're coming down there. And I just don't think that's the best way forward. That's a whole different conversation, isn't it? But man, how often do we actually have the conversation that way? We just had almost 60 people murdered by automatic weapons. Could we possibly have a conversation about ways that we might be able to prohibit that kind of weapon being used for the slaughter of our own citizens? Could we possibly have that conversation? So one side comes out and says, we need to talk about this, regulations. And the other side comes out and says, well, this isn't the time to talk about regulations. Well, the truth is, it's never the time to talk about regulations when your pockets are being lined by the NRA. So, hear that bombast? Hear the way I said that? Mm -hmm. Does that engender conversation? Does that tell you that I've sat down with gun owners who love having military-grade weapons and feel like it's an important thing for them to have? No, it doesn't communicate that, does it? You, you, you 
see what we're trying to model here? <coughs> so, should the people of God have that conversation? Is it, is it something that we desire that people aren't slaughtered attending festivals, music festivals? Is that a good thing? Yeah, it is a good thing. Maybe we ought to have conversations where we sit down and learn why there are those who think we ought to permit any and every kind of weapon to be owned by private citizens and learn and understand why there are those who think you shouldn't allow private citizens to own any and every kind of weapon. And I believe, personally, having seen it in the academic world anyway, that if we're willing to seek some, start from some common agreement and understand that we can begin to create broader fields of common agreement and broader fields of common agreement. You know, in America, compromise is a bad word, right? And in politics, if you, as a candidate, change your position or compromise, it's like a death sentence. How many of you have remained married without being involved in compromise? <laughs> Anybody? Compromise is the willingness to come to a mutual agreement through a willingness to sacrifice. I just point out that it requires educating yourself. It, it does. requires becoming educated and learning the truth. And so <coughs> people are so emotional Correct. about all of these issues. That's right. And the people. That's and, right. And I understand being emotional, mm -hmm. but when somebody wants to debate with you over this and they're not educated on the issue, then I mean, why? You, I just walk away. Yeah. I'm not going to engage with somebody that is not yeah. taking the time to invest and learn mm -hmm. about what the truth is around mm -hmm. all of that. I think as long as we're giving them a chance, right? If we're trying to listen and understand and recognize that there's no compromise available, our desire is still that they come to know Jesus, but maybe they know Jesus and we still can't have a meaningful conversation about it. Right. So yeah, we have to be judicious with how we spend our time in those conversations for sure. It's pretty interesting. I, I think I've left conversations in the past that I thought went nowhere and somehow if later on if we've demonstrated empathy and a willingness to learn and hear, sometimes those conversations come back around. But it was necessary and important to walk away the first time. Yeah. You know how to do this. You know how to talk about politics and remain friends. The question is, do you want to? The question is, is the unity of, body, of the body of Christ worth it to you? <coughs> or is winning more important to you? And for me, I may be backwards. It's easier outside the church mm -hmm. than it is for me inside. Well, it is for me too. So I, you know, I can have conversations, particularly about sexuality, with people outside evangelicalism that I can't have oftentimes inside the church. At least I see a willingness to learn and understand. We were, um, we hosted a series of meetings that um, Isle of School of Theology, Regis University, Denver Seminary, and uh, the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado sponsored, where we got representatives from all three. We were the evangelicals, Roman Catholics, liberal mainline Protestants, and we, we, we talked about particular concerns, and, and the idea was to bring about understanding. So in the middle of one of our conversations, a very frank conversation on sexuality, uh, a, 
participant stood up and said, I represent the LGBT plus community. And what right do you have as an evangelical to say that I am going to hell because I'm a lesbian? Said it just that way, pointed her finger at me. She was angry. She was um, close to tears. And you know, the interesting thing is, I don't believe she's going to hell because she's lesbian. Last time I checked, faith in Jesus is the only criterion for going to heaven or hell, unless the Reformation was wrong. So she assumed that that's what I believed. I didn't tell her, I could have, but I didn't tell her that not a single faculty member believes that you go to hell because of your sexuality at Denver Seminary. I didn't tell her that in 36 years of going to evangelical churches, I've never heard anyone say that from the pulpit. At that point in that time, it would have maybe embarrassed her one way or another. And so my desire was to say, I'm so sorry that you feel that evangelicals believe you're going to hell because you're a lesbian, because that's not what we believe. We didn't have any more conversation. I don't know if we ever will, but it was one of those moments where the pain, the anger, was so much on display, it just broke my heart. I want her to know Jesus. And she may. She may. Well, Danielle, I think I've pretty much exhausted all of my... <laughs> All right, well, let me come and pray for you. Okay, for thank us. you very much. That? Yeah, thank you. That'd be great. Can we say thank you first? For yeah. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for Dr. Young and for his passion, for his insight. Uh, God, thanks for this opportunity just to dig into your word and really to be convicted about who our allegiance is to. God, I pray that we would be a people that really would um, put our faith and hope in you first and foremost, God, that you would help us to listen well to one another and to love people first, God, um, not focusing on the issues, but focusing on humanity. Uh, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this opportunity to come together and honor and worship you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.